Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Greetings, greetings, everyone. Welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. And I hope you realize it's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use. You can find out about our upcoming guests. And today, I am joined once again my friends, by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Greetings, Bill. So, Bill, you and I have known each other for a long time, but here's something you might not know about me. Sometimes I enjoy watching television. Isn't that weird? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I love science fiction. I love all kinds of different things. But, you know, I I love a TV show that has a a science character on it, which is a fairly rare thing. Uh, but the rarest of all rare things is a fictional show with a science character who actually knows what she's talking about, who is an actual science person. Uh, it's a very, very narrow demographic. And so I'm very excited that we have that demographic on this show today. Yes, we do, my friends. Today, our guest is none other than Dr. Mayim Bialik. She is a neuroscientist. But you might know her from her starring roles in Blossom back in the 20th century and more recently, The Big Bang Theory, as Dr. Amy Farrah Fowler, a neurobiologist, and Mayim herself, Dr. Bialik, is a neuroscientist. Uh, Mayim, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Mayim? You may call me Mayim if I may call you Bill Nye. May I may I call you doctor? Is that okay also? You, you also can call me doctor, although if my mother's listening, she will remind you I'm not a real doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. But yes, you may call me doctor. You started out with a deep curiosity of the world, and then you found your way into acting, and then you found your way back into science, and then back into acting. Is that uh, a um, false fact or a true s- fact? That, that is a false fact. Um, my, my first inclination was that I would be a humanities person for the rest of my life, like my parents. And um, I excelled in humanities. I excelled in in writing and art 
and acting. I really liked being in school plays. So uh, both my parents were English teachers, and I assumed that I would be a humanities person. I started professionally acting when I was just about going into middle school, uh, which is considered a late bloomer for the industry, since most child actors start when they're toddlers. Um, And it was while I was working on Blossom, which I was on from 14 to 19, that I fell in love with science. And when Blossom ended, I was two years out of high school. And so at 19, I took 12 years off from acting. I did my undergrad in neuroscience and Hebrew and Jewish studies, and then my PhD, and then Big Bang Theory. That's quite a journey. How did you get into science when you were Blossom? Um, Well, because I I was still going to school and learning all sorts of things. So um, I had an unbelievable biology tutor. You know, I would have tutors on the set. Like, that's how we did it when you were, you know, a a TV actor in those days. So I had this tutor who literally answered an ad at UCLA. She was a dental student at the time. And she was the first person that really showed me that science can can be as beautiful, as poetic, as creative, and as inspiring as I previously thought poetry could be, um, you know, or or fine art. And I think also for me, having um, a female and a one-on-one uh, learning experience was really helpful for me. I was one of those girls who was very easily intimidated by boys and the climate of how I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s was very much like boys told you that science was for boys and girls kind of, we believed it. So here you are, you're you're working this show, you're being tutored at the same time, you have this whole science interest kind of germinating in your head while you're acting. Did At what point did you think, oh, maybe this is actually like a profession, maybe this is a, a life direction and not just an idle interest? Well, I think it was you know, I think that that year was a transformative one in my life because I previously thought that science wasn't for me. And, you know, growing up, I went to, I went to overcrowded public schools my whole life in Los Angeles. Um, you know, I was, I was part of the busing program of the seventies and eighties where they took kids from poorer neighborhoods, like the one that I grew up in. And they put us on buses early in the morning to go to magnet programs and schools that had more opportunity for us. I assumed that if I didn't, understand the way the teacher was teaching it, it wasn't for me because I wasn't good at it. And they didn't have time in a classroom with 30, 40 kids. They didn't have time to figure out my learning style versus your teaching style. So I really, until I was 15, just kind of like white knuckled it through math and through science. And I remember I really loved geometry. Uh, I loved proofs. Like that really appealed to me. But it wasn't until this tutor, her name was Firuze, until Firuze taught me the way that I learn, that I understood, and this was the transformative part, not only that I could acquire the skill set required to think about being a scientist, but she gave me the confidence to believe that I could do it. Because that's two separate things, you know? You can have the confidence, but no skill set. You can have the skill set and no confidence. But right. what I needed, I needed both. And, um, you know, at that point, I was 15, 16. I graduated high school when I was 17. And I was never really particularly taken with Hollywood. I wasn't really, I mean, I I was a late bloomer. I was never this kid who was like, make me a star. You know, that it was very, (laughs) I felt like a very accidental Hollywood success story. So I wasn't in it for money and fame. And there was no social media then. It's not like I was feeding off of that. I, I wanted to do what my grandparents immigrated to this country for me to do, to have a life better than what they left and go to college. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to live more anonymously. I wanted to be 
considered for what was inside of my brain and not sort of what I could offer you as a comedian and as someone who makes you money. Um, so I wanted college. I wanted that experience and I wanted to study science. And that's, you know, back then nurture versus nature had just started kind of, you know, being introduced into the, the, the cultural vernacular. So I was very interested in genetics initially. And it was an introduction in psychobiology that really, um, that was my first quarter of, of college at UCLA. What's where I psychobiology? Said, this is uh, psychobiology is, it's, it's basically neuropsych. Um, so the course is taught by two professors. The first is kind of, you know, basic psychology. And then the second is sort of the, the, the neurobiology behind behavior. So um, they call it psychobiology. Anatomy of the brain kind of thing? No, it was actually um, electrophysiology is is actually what we did. We we studied some of the most popular research that was creating the fusion of of psychological research, meaning research specifically in psychology, with um, action potentials and and recordings that we could take electrophysiologically uh, from neurons. Let's let's break that down a, a level more. You you want you want to know what's going on in the brain at the electrical level, sort of why the brain does what it does or how it does well, what that, it does. So so my my field of study. Like like neuroscience is the study of the brain and nervous system. Right. But the the class that initially kind of hooked me was was what they call psychobiology, which is like I said a, a two-part kind of interdisciplinary course where you learn about, you know, common psychology experiments, everything from Pavlovian conditioning to um, more elaborate, you know, sectioning of the corpus callosum, which is the fibers that connect the hemispheres of the brain and looking at how they fire differently. Um, and then the the sort of biology part of it was looking at what is the underlying n- neural structure and and specifically firing patterns that that lead us to understand behavior. So it's essentially neuropsychology, but it was taught by two professors, so they kind of divided it into two. And it was the it was the biology part that was more interesting to me, and the electrophysiology. And I said that's the level of understanding of the brain that I would like to have. But that's a pretty intense pivot away from acting at that point. It sounds like you really like you saw it and you thought, yes, this is me. This is what I want to know. Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't it wasn't in the contract I signed with the universe that I had to pick one thing and stick with it. Um, and, you know, I think especially as, as a woman um, and as a young woman, I was raised by a mother who taught me that there's no limit to what I can dream of. And, you know, my mother was raised at a time when she moved out of her house at 18 to move into my father's house. And, you know, there were so, so fewer options for women. And I was raised to believe that I get to explore all those parts of me. Both of my parents, um, you know, are are creative people. They were also civil rights activists and documentary filmmakers. So, you know, I I come from from parents who may not have been, you know, math and science friendly, um, but they they believed in in following your passion. They believed in um, not being limited by what we're told we should do. And so I guess I believe that I I can, as all people can, recreate myself and and follow what interests me and what drives me. And, you know, it was being a mom that had me leave academia so that I could be a full-time parent. So those are all difficult decisions. Your journey has a consistent thread or there's something in it that carries you from one thing to another. And so, for example... Can we talk briefly about good old hypothalamic regulation in relation to maladaptive, obsessive, compulsive, affiliative, and satiate, uh, satiety, satiety behaviors in Prader-Willi syndrome, the way anybody would act? Prader-Willi syndrome is a pretty intense focal point for your research. I, I was wondering about that. Yeah, so that was... 
that was the the topic of my thesis. So, you know, at, at UCLA, I went to UCLA, a very fine institution, go Bruins. And um, the, the program in, in neuroscience is an interdisciplinary program, uh, which essentially means there are no neuroscience professors per se. Uh, we pull from really every department, um, you know, everything from linguistics and even economics um, to, you know, engineering and psychology. So if you are a vegan person, which I am, there are only so many fields of research you can do for your thesis, uh, meaning I don't I choose not to work with animals. So the the fields of human research um, are usually in the fields of, of imaging, you know, functional neuroimaging, MRI and PET scan, things like that. Um, and the fields of mental retardation, which is where I ended up doing my my doctoral work. So Prader-Willi syndrome is, is a very rare, uh, about one in 15,000, spontaneous mutation on chromosome 15. It was actually the, the first human disease uh, showing genomic imprinting which means that um, if you're missing a region of of a chromosome, it does matter if it comes from your mom or your dad. Um, if it comes from one, you get Prader-Willi syndrome, and if it comes from the other, you get Angelman syndrome. What are the characteristics? Yeah, why don't you describe yeah, it? So, can you describe it a little bit? Because it's a it's a it's yeah. a very, it's a very difficult syndrome. Yes, it is a very difficult syndrome. Um, so Prader-Willi syndrome has um, a lot of kind of noticeable characteristics. People with Prader-Willi syndrome tend to look alike. Um, there's a distinctive facial features like almond shaped eyes and a specific downturned mouth. Um, it is the leading cause of, of genetic obesity. So people with Prader-Willi syndrome lack the ability to know when they're full and they have the lack of ability to stop eating when they are starting. So many people with Prader-Willi syndrome will have ruptured stomachs. They also have, um, very, very short stature, um, and before growth hormone was started being administered, um, you know, a, a lot of people with Prader-Willi syndrome specifically suffered uh, from, you know, from their stomachs rupturing and they're very, very obese. It seems like that would be a formula for a short life. Um, y- yes, but once growth hormone started being introduced, it obviously allowed them literally to grow taller, to 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 distribute the weight better. And the kind of diets that people with Prader-Willi syndrome are put on are extremely restrictive and very low calorie. Um, and people with Prader-Willi syndrome, you know, it's, um, it, it is the kind of syndrome where people will be extremely um, aggressive and assertive in order to get food. Because, you know, imagine your brain uh, consistently telling you that you are not full. Um, so individuals often need to live in group homes, um, and they need to live in facilities where the refrigerator is, is locked with lock and key. How did you pick this syndrome? What happened? So, um, well, as I said, there, there are only so many, um, you know, people in the neuroscience department doing human research. This was one of the fields. And, uh, I worked with Elizabeth Dykins who, um, studied Williams syndrome. And I, um, in, in preparation for working in her lab, I, I read uh, her book about all the different syndromes that she has studied. And when I got to Prader-Willi syndrome, I said, well, this is very interesting from a genetic perspective and from a psychiatry perspective, because they have very high, high rates of obsessive compulsive disorder and they can be very combative. Um, I said, has anyone looked at the hypothalamus? Like, has anyone gone in there and said, what's going on with oxytocin and vasopressin? And there had been some preliminary studies, uh, some postmortem studies, but um, what I ended up choosing as my thesis project was it was a pilot study to try and see if there were statistical correlations between secretions of oxytocin and vasopressin, um, which are secreted downstream from the hypothalamus, and how those correlated with their obsessions and compulsions. 
Tell, tell us about the hypothalamus and these other um, two fabulous uh, nouns. Yeah, so the, the, the hypothalamus is a, is a structure um, in the brain, and it's the size of about four peas. It's the, the pituitary dingle dangles from it, and that's what most people kind of know about for this region Dingle of the dangles brain. is the technical term. It is. It dingle yeah. dangles. Yeah. Um, the pituitary gland is, uh, you know, puberty. We think of it as, as puberty. Uh, but the hypothalamus has um, all these unbelievably beautiful connections to many, many, many other parts of the brain. And in particular, it's part of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, the HPA axis. Um, and this is essentially a part of the brain where, you know, puberty is controlled, uh, circadian rhythms, uh, homeostasis, yes, uh, satiety, like knowing that you're full. Um, so if this region of the brain is disrupted, you will get a variety of both physiological and also, um, you know, emotional disturbances as well. So, um, Prader-Willi syndrome is, is, um, you know, a really special population to study. I was very grateful to the Prader-Willi syndrome association of the U S, uh, for, for their help, because I actually had to, um, you know, get saliva and blood from uh, from adolescents with Prader-Willi syndrome. It's also a very difficult syndrome to study because they're on so many medications. Um, they're on so many medications, obviously, for growth hormone, and many have heart problems, uh, but also just for the psychiatric features. And what I was specifically interested in was obsessions and compulsions, because you'd think if you were constantly hungry, you might have a lot of obsessions and compulsions surrounding food, but their OCD is, is about four times the rate of the, the normal population, and it's not always just related to food. So obviously the question of, is oxytocin involved in OCD, is sort of one of the larger questions uh, that this pilot study was working towards. You you had OCD, didn't you, Maya? I, I, I still do. Um, yes, I'm a person with OCD. T tell us, how does it manifest? Um, so it, it, it manifested a lot of ways when I was a child and I didn't know that's what it was. Um, I would say I'm a, I'm a mild to moderate. Um, you know, I thought everyone had very special numbers and they had a certain number of times that they needed to like touch something or, um, or check something. And I used to count breaths. I used to count steps. Um, when I was first assessed for uh, what what was depression and anxiety when I was in my late teens, the psychiatrist said to me, do you have a special number? And I said, who doesn't? And he said, tell me more about your number. And I said, well, how long have you got? What is your and number? So my number's three, but it's also nine because that's three, three threes. Yeah, yeah because um, they're, they're related, of course. How do you feel about 27? I love 27. That's an especially special number. Um, and also the collection of useless items is something, another thing that falls on my lovely spectrum. Um, and I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, you know, at least point out, especially since it was part of my thesis that most people who use the word, the, the phrase OCD are, are using it colloquially. Like I like things lined up. I have OCD. Like I'm so OCD about this. And for those of us who actually have a diagnosis and, and a clinical one, um, what most people think of as OCD when they use it that way is the compulsions, the things that we do. But the true diagnosis of OCD comes from the internal obsessions and thought patterns that the compulsions are seeking to decrease the intensity of. So um, it's not simply, I like to wash my hands. It's if I don't wash my hands, my mother will die. Like those are things. Or if I don't pray the correct way, 
these people will die and I have to pray the same way every way or God will punish me. So that's all the internal things. Um, and so I'm one of those people, I don't know if you're this way, Bill, where when people use things colloquially that are incorrect, especially in my field, it makes me bananas. Yes. So I'd like to clarify, I'm not, I'm not speaking like, oh, I have OCD because I'm so neat. It's far beyond that. <laughs> okay. And so for example, you don't get when this, when people do this with your uh, area of concern, you don't get nauseous. You get nauseated. That is example. true. Yeah. For true an OCD that. example, for grammar obsessed man. True that. I am absolutely, um, I, I am also a grammar stickler. Yes, I come well, by that honestly. Yeah. Yes, I, yes. I, have, I have been nauseous, but that's a whole other thing. That I, yeah, that, Corey, that's, that's an effect that I have. I'm glad I can only <laughs> yes. see you from the collar up. Uh, I'm so, glad. So, so listen, I'm fascinated by the connection between the things you're grappling with internally and this research that you were working on, did studying Prader Willie, first of all, I guess, I mean, did you arrive at any new insights? And did it sort of help you with your own understanding of the workings of the brain? Um, I mean, obviously, when you studied neuroscience and you're you're trained in cellular and molecular, you know, goodies, and you're, you know, going through biochemistry and you're breaking things in lab, that would be me breaking things, and you're dissecting brains. Um, you know, all of that adds to your, your general knowledge, not only of your field, but um, for me, you know, had a tremendous impact on how I see the world, especially as a person of faith and just having that sense of like awe and um, and wonder, you know, about the world that we get to live in and have consciousness of, because um, all these things could exist without our consciousness of it as well. So, um, you know, in terms of my own OCD, you know, I, that's not the reason, you know, that I chose to study OCD, it was a fascinating, um, you know, kind of coincidence of sorts. But, um, you know, what happens with these pilot studies when you have an N, you know, a, a sample size of 25 people is you sometimes hit the jackpot and you get to publish it. And it's like, oh, my God, I found this. But what I found was that there's justifiable reason to study this more. <laughs> Um, but that's kind of, you know, uh, most times all you can hope for. And I know that when people hear that, like, oh, celebrity neuroscientist with a PhD, like she probably did something amazing. Nope. I did a pilot study that, you know, made for a 300 and some page thesis that is bound and that, you know, I got a copy for me and a copy for my parents. And, um, I hold a proud doctorate from UCLA, but that's kind of what that study, that kind of research looks like. And I did not do a postdoc, which is sort of the next logical thing because I had my first son in grad school and my second son, uh, I got pregnant the week I filed my thesis. So I, um, I took off to be an at-home parent. So. Right. You've obviously gone off to do a lot of other things. Have you managed to keep up with this field kind of in the background while you're doing other things? Um, sadly, no. I mean, and I think that was part of, um, you know, as a woman who who was of childbearing age, and especially I wanted to have my first child before 30. That was a, a scientifically guided decision just for me and, and my then husband. We wanted to have kids uh, before 30. Um you know, it became clear very quickly that you cannot physically be in two places at once. Um, and much as I believe women can do it all, we can't do it all at the same time. So, um, you know, that that did not allow me to keep up with, you know, conferences and all the things that I had been doing and, and need to be doing. But, you know, one of the things uh, is that, you know, as Bill knows, and as our paths have crossed, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for, for STEM and putting a female face in particular on STEM. Um, you know, I, I'm actually starting a, a podcast on mental health because I've decided to take my neuroscience, um, you know, my neuroscience training and my my years and years in therapy 
um, to try and help people tackle, you know, in more human ways, uh, what our mental health and mental wellness looks like, and also try and explain some of the science of mind-body syndrome. So those are other things I do where I, quote, use my scientific degree, but unfortunately I, I can't keep up, you know, the way I used to, and that is sad. It is sad. Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Science Rules is back. You alluded earlier to having a learning disability or learning trouble, and well, then you just I don't alluded. I call it a disability, but yes. I said tr- I went with trouble. Yes, <laughs> trouble with how people were trying to teach me. That was my trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, sure, it's <laughs> story of my life, and, and I'm sorry that shows you how often we hear the phrase. I just threw out learning disability because you is here nowadays anyway. I as a informal educator hear it all the time. But is that, and then you just alluded to therapy. Was that connected? Was there one, did one thing oh, lead to the other? No, no. I mean, I, I'm one of those people who believes everyone needs therapy to some extent. Um, Certainly no, everyone I, I, I've met does. Exactly. Well, it could be who we're meeting, right? <laughs> yes. Well, um, the thing is, what happens, this must happen to you, where your genius is not recognized. It happens to me all the time. Well, I have to, and people don't that, realize that my opinion is correct. It's no, weird. no, no. That is that is your story. That is not my story. Um, <laughs> no, I think that I was, you know, I, I was, like I said, I was part of a very, very um, factory-style public school education in a very large city with too many kids in a class. And there simply was not time for creative ways of learning or teaching, you know, jingles to help people remember things. I I was a very studious student. I was a very organized student. I was a very attentive student. Um, but the, the, the thing is people are still different kinds of learners, but I did not have any disability learning disabilities or anything like that. And I think that's also what was, um, you know, so much clearer to me that science and math wasn't for me because I just like, I don't get it. And what it turned out is that I needed things slower. Um, I, I think for me, having a female role model made a really big difference. Not being surrounded by all these kind of boys telling me like, you shouldn't do this, you know, th- that helped too. I, I do believe that single sex um, education is in many ways very helpful. And I, I do wish I had that opportunity. Therapy is just because I'm a human and my grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe and I have mental health issues on both sides of my family. We just didn't call it that, you know. Um, so I grew up with a lot of anxiety and and I am a person who um, has, has struggled with depression. How um, much of your mentor, your on-set uh, tutor, 
how much of your bonding with her and how much you got out of that relationship was connected to your faith? Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things that really appealed to me about learning with Firuza is that she would be brought to tears by how beautiful, you know, DNA was. Or if we were, if she was teaching me a concept and like, I couldn't get it, couldn't get it, couldn't get it. When I finally got it, it was such a special moment for her as my teacher. And that's what kind of gave me the, the freedom to, to feel like, you know, like when you listen to a beautiful piece of classical music and it kind of swells in you, like, that's what it felt like. It felt like an artistic, you know, revelation. And the fact that she happened to come, you know, from a family of faith and I happened to as well, you know, for me and, and I'm, and for her as well, but it wasn't part of our learning. But for me, that became a very, very deep appreciation for the fact that I couldn't build this if I tried. I, and, and I don't mean to say, I don't, I'm not one of those people who's like, the human eye is so amazing. It had to be God. I don't know what you want to call it. What I want to call it is that I can't stop the tides. I cannot control the natural world with prayer, with thought. It's not mine to control or manage. And that's great because I have enough on my plate. That sense of, I didn't make this. This is not human crafted. You can call it God. You can call it gravity. It's all those things. You know, if I choose to bless it, because that's part of my religious tradition. To me, that's the same faith as someone who says, I don't believe in God, but I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow. There's a lot of evidence for that. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> correlation does no, not prove causation, Bill. Yeah, I know. Well, I went with evidence. Yeah. So were you scared when you had this revelation or this time with the tutor? Like, wait a second. I can't control all this stuff. Yeah, or like, I'm so I'm uh, so I'm small compared to what's underneath. out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think you know, for me that that's a a core element of my religious upbringing that um, we are both nothing and we are the potential for everything. So to me, this all felt like a very appropriate sense of yeah. I mean, it, it's awe. You know, it is true awe, and it is true reverence for. Also, you know, the fact that we have consciousness, like when you have those moments of I'm sitting here in this room and I'm looking at a screen, like just all those small moments of having a conscious experience of our existence that can both bring on a panic attack if you are so inclined, or it can bring on, like you said, a tremendous, tremendous wave of insignificance and, and awe, which I find inspiring. You know, that's, that's that term. It's awe inspiring. Well, I feel like, I mean, we all have this hunger to understand ourselves a little bit better. And, you know, among the other things, this is a call-in show and we get people with questions and we happen to have somebody with a question, uh, which I would love to throw to you. Uh, can we roll that digital recording as Bill likes to say? How does the brain process short-term and long-term memory? Tell them your name. I'm Alex. How old are you? Nine. I have a question about the question, though. Uh, when we build computers, we set it up with read-only memory and random access memory. Are we projecting our computer building onto a brain? Take it, Mayim. Um, Well, I'll, I'll answer your question first. Um, yes, I mean we're we're living in a in a very redundant and and fractal existence. So. There are only so many new things under the sun, um, and we, we do work in, in some ways, uh, in many ways, the way, the way we think about computers working, 
But um, to speak more to the specific question of how do we process short-term and long-term information, um, I would have more questions that I would need to ask to know specifically, are we like, what kind of memory are we talking about? Because, um, you know, the, the memory of, of, of doing things with your body, like motor memory is different than learning a string of words or learning a string of numbers. Uh, but generally speaking, there are, um, it's hard to explain in a short way. There are, (laughs) there are very special parts of the brain, uh, that, that are made to to remember the firing of neurons. So neurons are are the very special cells of of the brain and the nervous system. And when these cells get um, activated, they they trigger other cells around them to also get activated. And they produce different patterns. And those patterns are stored in different regions of the brain. And depending on what kind of information is coming in, it, it can be basically transferred from a from a short-term station to a longer-term station. But it needs a lot of help to do that. It usually needs uh, like heavy emotional content or a lot of repetition um, or the combination of, of different parts of your body or, or singing, like a lot of different modalities, we call them, so that it can be converted. Um, repetition is, is one of the most important things that, that is necessary um, because it's literally the cells saying like, this seems really important. We better keep remembering this. Got to remember it. And there are literally different regions of the hippocampus, which is shaped like a seahorse, um, that, that we can see literally store this kind of information. And I'll leave it at that for now, but you're probably wondering how we know this. And the answer is a lot of very, very complicated, intricate experiments where we remove certain parts of the hippocampus in, in certain animals and we see what kind of things they can still remember and not remember. And also there are some very famous patients of people who had boo-boos to that part of their brain. Um, HM is one of the most famous um, where he he could no longer remember really anything, even in short term. And he constantly was meeting new people every single day and sometimes by the hour. Uh, wow. And so uh, you don't How did I do? Did I pass? I'm sweating. Oh, no, I, I, we, we need, a, we, we need a, a, a tough nine-year-old to grade you, but from, <laughs> from where I'm sitting, you did great. Okay. So repetition is, seems like the name of the game. You know, when you Repetition and rest and not doing drugs and alcohol. I mean, like if I'm speaking honestly, yes. Wow. You're, you're maybe mapping a out a little bit of the future of that nine-year-old, I hope. But <laughs> So, well, okay. Right. The way that I would say it was yes, re- repetition, uh, making sure you're you're rested also when you're trying to remember something, and and not introducing anything to your brain that would interfere with its organic functioning. And that might mean too much sugar. It might mean too many video games. Like it could be a lot of things. But picture yourself an animal in the wild. What are the things that used to happen for all of human history? That's what happened. And then we introduced some new things about 200 years ago. Electricity, uh, fresh farm food available. Traffic. traffic. (laughs) Uh, But it's the same brain, and we're processing all sorts of information in the same way. Correct. We had a voicemail from Alexis. Can we roll that digital recording from Alexis? Hi, Bill and the Science Rules team. I've been living with a learning disability uh, my entire life. I was diagnosed with it in the second grade. Um, As a kid, I had an extremely difficult time learning, particularly when it came to reading and uh, comprehension. 
uh, I was placed in special education classes. I stayed there throughout my schooling and into college. I utilized the resources of the uh, special education department. Uh, I don't really understand much about it except for my doctors called it a cognitive processing disorder. Um, they said I might grow out of it, but that hasn't been my experience so far. Uh, now that I'm in my late 20s, I find myself still struggling to keep up with learning new things at work. And I'm coming to realize that this might be a permanent situation in my life. So I guess I have uh, my questions are, one, what exactly is happening in my brain that prevents me from learning with the same ease as my peers um, when I was a kid and now as an adult? Um, my second question is, is it actually permanent? Is there any possibility that I will actually grow out of it even though I'm older now at this point? And three, if I can't grow out of it, what can I do to make it a little better, if anything. Thank you so much for your podcast, and I hope to hear back from you. Okay, so she asked three things. What's going on? Can I grow out of it? And if I can't, what what do I do, correct? Yep. Yeah, yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, doctor. So <clears throat> what's going on in Alexis's brain um, is one of the wonders of our existence and of the brain and nervous system which is that there are slight variations in everyone's brain. And sometimes the variations are not really noticeable in, in any way, but sometimes they are. And what happens in brains that have a learning disability um, or, or challenges in learning is that, you know, if you think of the brain like, like a superhighway, you know, and there's all these roads and there's all these, these, these paths that um, information can travel along, if a pathway is is too congested or gets overwhelmed, the, the information just can't go through that way. It can't go through the, the easiest way, let's say that the brain or, or the, the most organic way that the brain would, would have had that information travel. So for people with, with learning disabilities, there are certain regions of the brain, which I won't get into, that we know that sometimes there are communication problems with. And sometimes it will be, uh, you know, you might report things like, you know, I, I can only learn if someone reads to me or I have to see it or I have to physically do something so that I can learn the information better or I need to constantly move my body when I'm learning. Um, so that's kind of the the general of what's going on. What's going on is that information's not getting through in, in what might be perceived as a more efficient way. Um, and the, the question, can you outgrow it? Um, the the answer the, the simple answer is no, but the real answer is that the brain has an unbelievable capacity to compensate for things that may not be working at any given time um, or that aren't working the way we want them to. So there are many compensatory mechanisms that your brain probably already is utilizing to try and make you the most efficient communicator and learner that you can be. But the fact is, every brain is going to be different. And there's a certain percentage of people, and I think you already are, are understanding this, um, who who have difficulty in regions that other people don't. And keep in mind, you know, we're we're all animals, and we were not under the kind of academic stress, you know, for most of human history that we are now. Meaning, there were people like me, and there were people like you, and there were people like Bill Nye, you know, for all of history. But we weren't in a situation where we were being asked, for example 
you know, memorize this in, in, you know, two weeks and then you'll get a test and the rest of your life will be determined by the fact that you could memorize these or you couldn't. Um, and in terms of me saying that it may not be something that you grow out of, um, there are absolutely, there's, there's two kind of ways that this can get quote better. Um, one is by learning more and getting support where you can surrounding your, your particular challenges so that you can find other ways that your brain can try and work around the things that don't seem to be working the way that you want. What more are you talking about? Doing word problems or, or. Well, I think sometimes it, it can be as simple as, um, learning what supplementary things you can and should be doing when you're trying to learn something. And like I said, for some people, um, you know, it, it might not have occurred to them to recruit other senses, for example, um, or that sometimes it's easier to learn instead of trying to force yourself to learn by reading to, to use auditory support, uh, where it is available. And, and those are some things that again, were not available when I was a kid. Um, and now I have many friends with learning disabilities who do, um, have the ability to, you know, to use uh, dictation programs and things like that so that they can actually hear things back and, and be able to learn them. And, and the other component um, is, is also about coming to a sort of understanding um, that there are no mistakes. Uh, we, are, we are all here for a specific reason and purpose, and all of our brains are special for different reasons. And, you know, as someone who has mental health challenges, there are many times, many, many times in my life where I've thought, Why? Why did I have to be born with this sensitivity? Why am I sound sensitive? That's not a helpful thing for me. However, it evolutionarily, we've all developed for a particular reason. And what I've tried to find also is what are the things that are special about my brain? You know, where is being more sensitive helpful emotionally or in what I do or as a science communicator? So I don't mean to give kind of a, a floofy, you know, out there answer, but I think part of it is understanding that Every brain's going to be different. There may be some tools that can be learned to help your brain work more in the way that you'd like it to, but also this is where we all are at and we we get to find some sort of some some peace and some some serenity around the fact that we're all going to be different and that's okay. That's a cool answer. It's very cool. And in celebration of this, if I understand this, you're going to do a podcast called Breakdown. My right? Alex breakdown. Yes. Yeah, and it's about breaking down the myths. Correct. Of mental health, right? And uh, what do we call it? emotional well-being. Correct. And I think and there's maybe something a little bit self-effacing in the title. Um. Yeah. So well, I wanted to be able to say I'm Maya Bialik, and welcome to my breakdown. Because um, the idea is that I'm going to break things down so that you don't have to have a breakdown. And um, you know, absolutely would love to 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 see if I can get you to continue any aspect of this conversation because I think that. There are so many aspects of things that we've never been told that can increase our emotional well-being. It's not just about being given a diagnosis and being told which pills, you know, someone thinks we should take. Um, you know, it, there really is a, a, a need in this country, and I think we've all seen it now. Um, if you haven't dealt with your issues, they're going to be right here when you're stuck in your house by yourself or, you know, without much contact. Science Rules will be right back. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. 
Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You're listening to Science Rules. You've written books, including Girling Up, right, about going through puberty or growing yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did Boying Up as well um, for, you know, explaining kind of the, the neuroscience behind puberty and also some of the, the psychological shifts. Um, obviously, for Boying Up, I needed some out, outside voices since I'm not a boy. What's been the success of that book? What, what was it that was misunderstood about growing up for girls? On their way to oh them. my goodness! Uh, so many things. I mean, you'd be surprised how many grown women I speak to who couldn't describe what a menstrual cycle even is. Um, the knowledge of one's body is is incredibly important, and especially for women when it comes to understanding our bodies in terms of fertility and if we want to have a baby, if we don't want to have a baby. Um, th- there are many, many things that I wish I had been told as a as a young girl, as a teenage girl. Um, I come from a house where we did not talk about those things, yeah. and um, I there were things that I absolutely would have loved to know. And I think also, um, we, we all have, uh, you know, a right to know what's going on in our brain and body, uh, both girls and boys. And I think also understanding that the concepts of beauty we have in our culture do not hold for all times. They do not hold for all, all places in the world. Um, so understanding that, um, some of the aspects of of growing up that feel painful are also culturally determined, meaning in terms of the pressures on us with social media and all those things. And I also introduced in in both books uh, the the importance of understanding the connection between your mind and body, and that um, things like learning to have quiet time, learning to see what works for you socially, learning to breathe, learning to understand what a guided meditation can do for your blood pressure and for your overall health. Um, learning the basics of nutrition, like just things that we need to know um, to have our bodies working well. Um, so, so yeah, uh, learning learning the basics of nutrition. You became a vegan, right? I happen to be a vegan, but I don't I don't purport that everyone should be. But yes, I happen. Are, are to you be a lifelong vegan. vegan, or how long have you been? No, doing it? I yeah, I became a I was a vegetarian that still ate eggs and dairy from the time I was nineteen, and um, about. 10 years after that, I started the transition to no dairy, stopped having sinus infections, stopped being on antibiotics, um, and then cut out the last of trace eggs and dairy about 13 years ago. And I'm also a lifestyle vegan, we call ourselves, the kind that don't wear wool and don't wear leather. But I'm not self-righteous, I promise. It's my life, it's not yours. I don't know what you need to do. It's just me. I have a big career question that I've always been interested in asking you about. I mean, your experience of being squeezed out of academia is unfortunately a, a not a not uncommon one of people who just find that they can't you know, they just can't reconcile the life they, they want to live with the with the demands sure. of of a, of, a, of being in academia that next step of finding your way back to a professional career and it landing you on a network sitcom that's a more unusual uh, experience what was that like very shocking to be honest you know i was in academia for 12 years as i said um, I had a, you know, an, an infant and a toddler and I, I ran out of health insurance and that's a true story. Um, you get, you know, insurance as a grad student and then it ends and we had a baby and we had a toddler. Um, so my 
my decision to return to acting was literally like, I mean, I was teaching neuroscience. I taught neuroscience for five years um, in the homeschool community and junior high and high school homeschool community here in Los Angeles. I tutored piano. I tutored Hebrew. Like I was doing a lot of different things, like sometimes with a baby strapped to my chest. So I figured, you know, if I can get even a couple acting gigs, like I will be able to get my insurance back. Like that's literally what I assumed. I was not looking to be a regular on television. I was living as a grad student. Like I had long, you know, hippie chick hair. I wore pajamas most days. I didn't even know what size clothes I was. Just like I was living the life of like a hippie grad student. Um, I had never, or I didn't know what the Big Bang Theory was when I was asked to audition for it. Like this literally was not part of the life plan. I was still teaching neuroscience for my first year on Big Bang Theory, uh, you know, coming up with lesson plans and doing all of that. So um, it was a very, it was very startling. It was, you know, I like to say it's like the industry I kept trying to get out of that keeps like pulling me back in, you know, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. Well, you're very funny. I mean, you're fantastic. Well, thank you, so Bill. who well, thank you as a viewer. So they, what, your agent sent you to an audition? What happened? Yeah, like I, I had a manager um, who I had known b- b- like many years before and you just get sent out for parts. And at that time, you know, I was sent out for like chubby friend number two because I wasn't a size zero or two, which is fine. I mean, I had just had children and I, you know, I'm a grown woman. Um, so I just went out for all these like random parts. Like that's literally what happened. And I was asked to do a female impression of an actor I had never heard of, and his name was Jim Parsons, just because I wasn't watching TV. I was nursing babies and writing a thesis. Like, it was not on my on my radar to watch The Big Bang Theory. So I literally Googled Jim Parsons, and I was like, oh, I know people like that. <laughs> I went to neuroscience grad school. Like, I know all those people. And that was it. Right. Now, but here's this role that seems almost tailor-made for you. I mean, did they know that did they know your background is that why they were attracted to you or did they adapt the role so no no i i auditioned which with a bunch of really talented actresses none of whom were neuroscientists um on my resume under miscellany i wrote phd neuroscience because i didn't know where to put it and i feel like i went to school for 12 years it should go somewhere so it's under miscellany like speaks hebrew speaks speaks spanish phd right phd knows how to roller skate phd neuroscience um, Bill, Bill Prady said that when they brought me back in the fourth season, my character at first had no identity, really. Um, when they brought me back in the fourth season, he said, we figured we'd make her what you are. So you can answer questions about it if we need you to. Um, but many of our writers, you know, Bill, as you know, many of our writers are very, very intelligent, have science backgrounds. Some of them, um, also they Google things that they don't know. So it's not like they needed my ambiolic to fix everything. And Dr. David Salzberg, a physics professor at UCLA also was our science consultant. So he and I would talk about what PCR I should be running and what Amy should be doing in the lab, um, together. He was the guy that fills, fills out the, uh, whiteboard with all these equations. <laughs> it's just That's a cool- right. Guy. Yeah, yeah, he's a really cool guy. And he would bring his geek of the week uh, to set, you know, one of his grad students and all the posters that would hang in the hallways, you know, when we would do scenes at school. Uh, those were actual posters from from his students. So um, really, really cool. Mom, I was there when you were talking with everybody. They, You were working out some detail of the dialogue to be consistent with what a neuroscientist would say. It was cool. That was a cool moment for me. I was so, probably just trying to impress Bill Nye because it was always such a thrill to have you on. So, well, I was wondering, did, I mean, were there ever, were there moments of kind of guerrilla STEM outreach where you would, you know, f- sort of find one little thing that you could pass on to the one of the writers or get into the into the dialogue? No, I mean, you know, I, I try I tried to keep it on the DL, you know, on the down low because other actors don't like when you're that person, you know. Um, <laughs> 
Like, oh man, I, I, you guys, uh, I blew it. I tried to ad lib a line, and it sucked, <laughs> and it was just nothing. Oh god, I'm surprised they it's had a tough me back. crowd. But changing the subject just a little from the Big Bang Theory to the uh, coronavirus, you have had controversial views about vaccines. Yeah. So tell us about that, if you don't Yeah, know. well, I, I actually, I, I just published, a, I have a YouTube channel, and I just published a video um, entitled, Am I an Anti-Vaxxer? The short answer is is no. And the fact is, I, I don't know that I consider my my views on vaccines necessarily controversial. I've actually, um, I, I've never said that vaccines don't work, that they're not important, that they're not necessary. My children are vaccinated. Um, what this came from is that I wrote a book about parenting and my experience parenting. At that time, my children were were young and they had not been vaccinated on a normal schedule. And, um, you know, as I'm sure you've been familiar with, things can take off in the internet world in a way that it defies a lot of logic. You know, it's beyond exponential, if there is such a thing. <laughs> um, and the fact is, you know, people calling for me to, you know, have my children taken away from me because I don't deserve to be a parent if I don't, whatever, um, is is very complicated and also not necessarily something I was prepared to take on in social media land. So um, when I started hearing from from acquaintances and, and friends, like, well, I don't think I'm going to take the COVID vaccine, I near lost my mind. And I said, you know, now's the time to try and explain, you know, the perspective of those of us. There are many of us who who tend to be skeptical about the schedule of vaccines, which has changed significantly since I was a kid. Um, you know, many people don't even know how you get hepatitis B, and yet they will defend to the death giving it to a newborn. Um, so my feeling is we should all be all be better educated about what vaccines are, what's in them, what can hurt us, what can't. I've never said that vaccines cause autism. That's never been something I believed or said. Um, but what I will say is that the notion that people think that they should not get vaccinated against this is astounding to me, to the point that I decided to take these people on and say, I'm skeptical. It's a money-driven industry. I get it. There are too many vaccines given, in my opinion, but that's not what's that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is we have a virus that is incredibly unpredictable, incredibly bizarre, is mutating as we speak, and we will never get to herd immunity with a vaccine that is never going to be 100% effective, because no vaccine is, if less than 50% of the people are even saying they're going to get it. it. It is, if we don't have enough of a public health travesty right now, to me, this is the next travesty, is people not lining up. I said, I'm going to get a flu vaccine for the first time in about 30 years this year. I mean, I said to my children, roll up your sleeves, boys. This is it. We do not mess around with this. We don't know enough about this. Everyone's getting vaccinated. I, it's it's beyond. So go to YouTube if you'd like to hear my, you know, my reasoning through this. But absolutely happy to go on the record saying, while I may not agree with everything about the vaccine schedule and how much it's changed since I was a kid, this is a no-brainer. Hey, Corey. Oh, wait a second. Do you hear that? I do. It has it, been like a change in the weather. I feel a f like a cold front moving through, and I, I hear a sound. It's a it's sound of distant thunder, which means uh, lightning. Oh, and if lightning, lightning has struck. means that it is the lightning round. Are you ready? Okay, I'll try. Try doing your best. The worst thing not that bad, Maya. <laughs> it's, okay. it's, it's lightning. It's, it's a force of bad. nature. It's part of the world beyond our control. 
Maya, what is the single most misunderstood thing about acting? That it's hard. That it's hard. I got an opinion is that people think if you're the person on television doing this role, you're like that all the time. That but, is that, a much better answer. That's where well, you're going. Well, you know, people expect me to hear the kung fu sh- 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 sounds. I thought you'd be I in a bow tie. Head. I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. talking about you'd be in a bow tie today. No, I learned how to take it off. It took. It took. Yeah, he was. He was time. born in the okay, bow tie. Uh, it, it took many, many years to get yeah. him out of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Back to lightning. <laughs> yes, yes. Single most misunderstood thing about neuroscience. That it's just for nerds. Oh, cool. In 30 seconds or less, why should someone study neuroscience? Oh, wow. It is the most gratifying understanding of our existence as humans. It's the science of of how we see, how we hear, how we taste, how we smell, how we touch things, and how we have a conscious experience of all of those things. Who wouldn't want to study that? Who wouldn't want to study that? Who? Who, wow, Bill? That's, Who? that's powerful. Is there some real science that made it into the Big Bang Theory that you're proud of? I mean, I think Dr. David Salzberg is the real science that made it into the Big Bang Theory. All of his equations on the whiteboard and all of the posters that we hung and all of the things that we ran by him to make sure they were right. All right. That's pretty doggone good. Okay. If you weren't a neuroscientist, nor were you an actor, what would you be doing? I think I'd be a stay-at-home mom. I think I'd be damn good at it, even if I wouldn't do it perfectly. Uh, all right. Do you watch your own shows? No, have I don't even like to hear my own voice. <laughs> That's like <laughs> you are. You are Amy Farrah Fowler. You are. That is, uh, I have to tell you that is one what? of the hardest things of the podcast is hearing yourself on the podcast. Oh, I don't need to hear myself. My job is to speak, not to listen. Oh, I know. Plus, my voice sounds wrong. Doesn't don't people realize that? That's well. Not you how have my a lovely voice. voice. I sound like a troll. You sound lovely to us on the outside. It's just when you're <laughs> listening to your voice, the correct your own voice right. comes from the wrong side of your ear. Yes. All right. Have you had a favorite role? I mean, Amy Farrah Fowler was pretty darn special, but my new show is called Call Me Cat. Um, and I'm with producing it with Jim Parsons, cat, cat with a K, and I think she's going to be my favorite. She's a quirky lady who owns a cat cafe because she leaves her job as a science Ooh. teacher. <laughs> wow. How could? How are you going to prepare for that? I mean, that's a joke. That's cool. This is just great. This is just great. Everybody, she studies neuroscience because it's the way you learn about yourself and the universe. How cool is that? Thank you, Mayim. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about mental health, your PhD, all things science, and acting. Our guest today, everybody, has been Dr. Mayim Bialik. She's an actress and a neuroscientist. And remember, when it comes to entertaining and caring for ourselves and others, science Science rules. If you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us find out what you want to learn about and helps other people learn about the show. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials for more information about upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Same guy. Right back at you. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martiran is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Science Rules. Rules. Mayim, thank you so much. Wash your hands, wear a mask, get a vaccine.
Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.